0: The following audio is from Life Baptist Church in Las Vegas, Nevada. For more information about our church, please visit lifebaptistchurch.com. The gospel message does not center in a philosophy, a doctrine, or a religious system. It centers in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It centers in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, Warren Weersby. If that is true, who you say Jesus is really, really matters. If that is true, if you have placed your hope, your faith, your trust in the gospel message, who you say Jesus is really, really matters. In 2010, City Church in Seattle, Washington, launched a media campaign all across the downtown area with the hopes of getting Jesus on the mind of Seattle. Their campaign was simply Jesus is with a blank line afterwards for people to fill in their adjectives. They plastered this on billboards, buses, and in coffee shops and in many more places around the city of Seattle. They launched a website dedicated to it. And in the first few years, over 1.5 million people visited the site. And over 75,000 people filled in who they said they believe Jesus to be. The responses range from biblical truth to complete heresy, from worshipful glorifying words to evil degrading words, from love for Jesus to hate towards him. Who you say Jesus is matters. It matters for salvation. It matters for sanctification. It matters for life transformation. Who you say Jesus is will most likely determine how much you trust this Jesus. Who you say Jesus is will most likely determine how obedient you are to Jesus. Who you say Jesus is shapes how you see God, how you see yourself, and how you see others. Who you say Jesus is really matters. So who is Jesus to you? Mormons believe they can become just like Jesus Jews see him as a heretic, Muslims say he is a prophet, Hindus say he is a god, not the god, but a god. Buddhists say he was an enlightened man, and some foolish people have even claimed that he never really existed at all. Who do you say Jesus is? That is what Paul addresses in the letter to the Colossae church. In the letter of Colossians, He addresses this vital, vital issue. Specifically in Colossians 1, 15 through 19, that is where we find ourselves today, looking at who he is and what he has done. But before we do, would you pray with me? Jesus, I ask that you open our eyes. You open our hearts. Will you do what only you can do in us? May we see more of you, and how great you are. We love you so much in your name. Amen. Colossians is a letter written to the churches at Colossae and Laodicea. It may be one of Paul's shorter letters, but quite possibly the most powerful when it comes to who Jesus is. You see, that was one of the main purposes of Paul writing the letter. One of his main purposes was to refute what was being taught in and out of the church of who Jesus was. Some of the same issues that we face today, describing that Jesus is not fully God, that Jesus did not exist, that Jesus is not God and did not do the things that scripture declares, were being taught to the first century church as well. And Paul would have none of it. Paul would have none of it, and so he wrote this letter. John MacArthur said this about it. Of all the Bible's teachings about Jesus Christ, none is more significant than Colossians 1, 15 through 19. This dramatic and powerful passage removes any needless doubt or confusion over Jesus' true identity. It is vital to to a proper understanding of the Christian faith. So let's read Colossians. Let's read Colossians together. Colossians 1, 13 through 22. Colossians 1, 13 through 22 says this. For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. In whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. Verse 17. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him. And through him to reconcile all things to himself. Having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him I say whether things on earth or things in heaven. And although we were formerly alienated and hostile in mind. Engaged in evil deeds. Yet he... Yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. There's more theology in this section of scripture that any pastor should ever attempt to try to fully explain in many messages, let alone one. So my hope and my goal is not to fully explain every single point of theology in this scripture, but to lift Jesus high and to show you, to show you the Jesus that Paul would so willingly suffer for. Right after he pins these words, he writes, I rejoice in my sufferings because of this Jesus. So who is Jesus according to the apostle Paul? First, he is the image of the invisible God, verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God. He is the ikon the, of the invisible God. Ikon being the Greek word where we get the English word icon, meaning copy or likeness. Jesus is in the perfect image, the exact likeness of God, and is in the very form of God. By describing Jesus in this manner, Paul emphasizes that he is both the representation and the manifestation of God. He is fully God in every way. The way the writer of Hebrews says it in the beginning of Hebrews 1 and 3 is this He is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. He's not kind of like God, he's not a God. He is the exact representation of God. Paul boldly declares Jesus to be God in the beginning because he wanted his readers to know this is the Jesus that I'm talking about. He goes on and he says in verse 15, he says that Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. There's a lot of confusion around this statement. From first century religions to the Jehovah's Witnesses of today and many more, this is the phrase that has been used to argue that Jesus was created and not fully God. To make that claim from this verse is to not understand what firstborn really means. Although the Greek word used can mean, can mean firstborn chronologically, it primarily refers to rank or position. Rank or Position. In both Greek and Jewish culture, the firstborn was the son who had the right to the inheritance. He was not necessarily the first one born. Esau was born first chronologically. However, it was Jacob who was the firstborn and received the inheritance. Israel is called God's firstborn in Exodus and Jeremiah, though they are not the first people or nation ever to be born. They held first place in God's sight among the nations. In Psalm 89 27, God says this of the Messiah, I also shall make him my firstborn. Then it goes on to define what that means. What it means is the highest of the kings of the earth. Firstborn in this context clearly means highest in rank, not first created. There are several other reasons why firstborn does not mean first created in this context. One, Paul could have used the Greek word for first created, but he did not. He used the word for firstborn. Second, it does not line up with the understanding of Jesus being the only begotten son of God in John 1. Jesus cannot be the only begotten son and the first begotten son. Third, it does not line up with the purpose of the letter to the churches, which was to defend Christ's deity. Paul would be contradicting himself if he was saying Jesus was created and not the creator. Fourth, and I think most compelling, is that Paul immediately after this phrase, pins the words in verse 16 and 17 and says this, For by him all things were created, And in verse 17, he is before all things. He could not be created and the creator. He could not be before all things if he had to be created. The proper understanding of this phrase, firstborn, is to understand it first in rank and first in position in everything. He goes on. He goes on to say who Jesus is. And he says, he is the creator of all things, verse 16. He is the creator of all things. Notice Paul does not leave anything out. He says this, for by him, all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him. He is created over all No one helped him, no one guided him, no one gave him advice. He created it all. When was the last time you stopped and gazed and wondered of the God who created the planets? When was the last time you looked up into the stars and said, my God created that? When was the last time you read about or examined the intricacies of the human body? and our Jesus our Jesus thought up all of that he spoke all of that he created all of that he created you he knit you together there's a purpose for you and for me he goes on he goes on and he says he is why all things have been created, verse 16. Not only is he the creator of all things, he is why all things have been created. His creation is for his glory and it magnifies him. Have you ever, have you ever looked at the northern skies? I have never had the, the great privilege to go and actually see them myself, but there's some amazing photographers who have captured The paintbrush strokes of our God, and those declare His glory, because those aren't even close to how great He is. Yet those are amazing in and of themselves. The David would write this: "The heavens are telling of the glory of God. Don't miss His creation, and don't miss God as you look at His creation." See how it screams of the glories of God. All things were created by him and for him. What else? He is before all things, verse 17. He is before all things. When the universe had its beginning, Christ was already there. Christ existed. He is before all things and he will be after all things. He is eternal, immortal, the everlasting God. He is before all things. In verse 17, he goes on and he says, he is what holds all things together. Not only, not only did he speak all things into existence, not only did Jesus create everything, but the apostle Paul declares to the early church, he is who holds all things together. He didn't just create it and walk away and now it's just in existence. No, he is who holds all things together, including your life. Including your circumstances. If he's powerful enough to hold the universe in his hand, how powerful is he to hold you as well? He goes on. He doesn't stop there. He goes on and he says in verse 18, he is the head of the body of the church. Pastor Paul, Pastor Matt, myself, J.D. Greer, Matt Chandler, John MacArthur, whoever else you want to put in there that is a pastor is not the head of the church. Jesus Christ is the head of the church. He is who initiated initiated it, and he is the head of it. In verse 18, he goes on to continue, and he says, he is the beginning. This refers to both source and preeminence. The church had its origins in the Lord Jesus Christ, and he gave life to the church through his sacrificial death and resurrection. The church is nothing without Jesus Christ. He started it, and he is who sustains it. He is the head of the church in the beginning of it. He goes on in verse 18. He says, he is the firstborn from the dead. He is the firstborn from the dead. Again, not chronologically, but first in rank and position. Of all who have been or ever will be raised from the dead, Christ is supreme. He is the one who reigns over death because he is the only one that has conquered death eternally. He has all authority over death. He is, in verse 18, he is first in everything. First in everything. Christ is supreme in everything. There is no ruler, no authority, no power that Christ is not supreme over. He is first in everything. Is he first in your life? Because he is first over all. In verse 19, he is He is the only human to have the fullness of God dwell in him. He is the only human to have the fullness of God dwell in him. We may have attributes of God, but we do not have the fullness of God. Only Jesus Christ has that. Paul reemphasizes this in Colossians 2.9. He writes, "...for in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form." all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. The teaching that God's divine attributes are shown in and separated among many spiritual and created beings was plaguing the early church at Colossae. This was Paul's counter, that the fullness of deity, all the divine powers and authorities are not spread out among created beings, but are completely found in Christ and Christ alone. Jesus is not part human and part God. He is not just God and he is not just human. He is fully God and fully man. All of God, all of God dwelt in him as he was a human on earth. Finally, who is he? He is reconciling all things to himself. He's a reconciler. Man, that's a good thing. That is a good thing. The Greek word for reconcile means to change or exchange. In the New Testament, it refers to the change in the sinner's relationship to God. Man is reconciled to God when God restores man to a right relationship with him through Jesus. Jesus is the reconciler. Not your good works, not your good deeds, not anything you've ever done. Jesus is who reconciles. Jesus, who is is the one that exchanges how God sees you. This does not teach that all will be saved, but rather it teaches that all will ultimately submit. Every knee will bow, and yes, one day, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord, saved or not. One day we will stand before him and recognize him as Lord and Savior. Whether you're saved or not depends on how you, of who you say he is while you're on earth. You see, This is who the Apostle Paul knew Jesus to be. This is who Scripture describes Jesus to be. But the Apostle Paul doesn't stop with that. He says, and this Jesus, this Jesus, this is what he's done. This is what he's done. Go back to verse 13 with me. It says, he has rescued us from the domain of darkness. He has rescued you those that have placed faith in Jesus, he has rescued you from the domain of darkness. He has rescued you from the grip of Satan and his kingdom. He has not only rescued you from the eternal punishment that we deserve, but he has rescued you today, here and now you are rescued from the control of sin and darkness. He has rescued you. He goes on and he says, he has transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, verse 13. He has transferred us. It was good enough for him to rescue us. It was more than we deserved for him to rescue us from Satan's power and his grip. But then he says, I transfer you into my kingdom and my son and my daughter. You are no longer this, but you are mine. I have transferred you. I have transferred you into my kingdom into, as a child of mine. What else? What else has he done? He has redeemed us. He has redeemed us, verse 14. The Greek word for redemption means to deliver by payment of a ransom. That Jesus that we just talked about. The one who created everything holds it all together. He redeemed you. It cost him a hefty price. It cost him a hefty price to make a way for you and I to be changed. In this verse, it refers to slaves being freed from bondage. Christ's blood, Christ's life has completely freed us from the bondage of sin. Jesus is not part of the solution to being free from sin. He is the solution to being freed from sin. If you're searching anywhere else, you will not find freedom. Freedom comes in what Christ has done for you. What else? What else has he done according to the Apostle Paul? He has forgiven our sins, verse 14. He has forgiven our sins, verse 14, forgiveness. Oh, how sweet it is. When you know, when you know you're in the wrong, when you know you've offended someone else and you need their forgiveness, how sweet it is when those words come out, I forgive you, I forgive you. And that's what our creator has done. He has forgiven our sins. He has forgiven the abomination of what we have done against him. He has forgiven that. He goes on and he says, he has made peace possible between you and God, verse 20. He has made peace possible between you and God. There is no other way for you and I to have peace with the God of the universe other than through Jesus Christ and what he has done. Jesus has made it possible. God's wrath is what we deserve, yet it is his peace that he offers us through his son Jesus Christ. He goes on in verse 21 and 22. He has reconciled you to God. He has reconciled you to God. He is the one who has changed the status of your relationship with God. He is the one who has taken broken, estranged, sinners like you and I once were and changed who we are before God. We have been reconciled to God. It was through Christ, that we have been reconciled. He goes on in verse 22. He has presented you before God as holy, blameless, and beyond reproach. Not only has he changed your status before God, not only has he he made a way for us to have peace with God, he now presents us before that same God and says, you are holy, you are blameless, and you are beyond reproach, not because of what you have done, but because of what Jesus has done for you. God sees you the way he sees his son. God loves you the way he loves his son. Jesus could not be any more perfect. Jesus could not be loved any more by his father than he already is, and that's how he sees you holy, blameless, and beyond reproach. He no longer sees you as a sinner. He no longer sees you with blemishes. He no longer sees you beyond reproach. He uh, he sees you the way he sees Christ. No one one day when you stand before him, if you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, no one, no angel, no demon, not even Satan himself can bring anything against you because of what Jesus has done for you. Jesus has presented you wholly, blameless and beyond reproach before his father. According to the apostle Paul, this is who Jesus is. Jesus Christ is completely sufficient because he is completely God. Because he is completely God, his sacrifice for you is completely sufficient for your salvation and sanctification. I want to end by reading you something. I want to end with reading you something that's a little lengthy, but it must be read. And I want to encourage you, put your notes aside, put your Bible down, put your phone away and just listen. As I was preparing for this morning, I came across this. It's entitled, The Glories of Christ. The Glories of Christ. One of the greatest tenets of Scripture is the claim that Jesus Christ is completely sufficient for all matters of life and godliness. He is sufficient for creation, salvation, sanctification, and glorification. So pure is He that He is that there is no blemish, stain, spot of sin, defilement, lying, deception, corruption, error, or imperfection. So complete is He that there is no other God besides Him. He is the only begotten Son. All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are in Him. The fullness of deity dwells bodily in Him. He is heir of all things. He created all things, and all things were made by him, through him, and for him. He upholds all things by the word of his power. He is the firstborn of all creation. He is the exact representation of God. He is the only mediator between God and man. He is the sun that enlightens, the physician that heals, the wall of fire that defends, the friend that comforts, the pearl that enriches, the ark that supports, and the rock to sustain under the heaviest of pressures. He is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He is better than the angels, better than Moses, better than Aaron, better than Joshua, better than Melchizedek, better than all the prophets, better, greater than Satan, and stronger than death. I'm not done. He has no beginning and no end. He is the spotless lamb of God. He is our peace. He is our hope. He is our life. He is is the living way and true way. He is the strength of Israel. He is the root and descendant of David the bright morning star. He is faithful and true. He is the author and perfecter of our faith. He is the author of our salvation. He is the champion. He is the chosen one. He is the apostle and high priest of our confession. He is the righteous servant. He is the Lord of hosts, the Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, the God of the whole earth. He is the man of sorrows. He is the light. He is the Son of Man. He is the vine. He is the bread of life. He is the door. He is the Lord. He is prophet, priest and king. He is our Sabbath rest. He is our righteousness. He is the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace. He is the chief shepherd. He is Lord God of hosts. He is Lord of the nations. He is the lion of Judah, the living word, the rock of salvation, the eternal spirits. He is the ancient of days, creator and comforter, Messiah, and he is the great I am every single one of those is straight from scripture. That is who Jesus is. If that is not the Jesus you know, you might not know the God of the Bible. If you don't know that Jesus, he is offering. He is offering you to have a relationship with him. Simply placing faith your hope and your eternity in his hands, recognizing that you're a sinner and he's your savior. He has made a way. He has made a way for us that may have never placed faith in him to be our savior. And for those of us who know him as our savior, if that's not the Jesus you know, get to know that Jesus. It changes everything. It changes everything. Would you pray with me? Jesus, I thank you that you are greater than everything. I thank you that my hope and my trust and my future I can easily place in your hands because of who you are. God, I thank you for what you have done for us. What a gift it is that you would make a way for us to be saved and to have a relationship with you. God, I pray that as a church, we will know you more. We will know that Jesus and our lives will be changed forever by him. May the world see who you are because we know who you are. We love you so much in your name. Amen.